Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. my friend Shockwave on the other microphone. Yeah. You may have heard him as part of uh, the award-winning uh, hip-hop improv crew, Freestyle Love Supreme. Yeah, and of uh, your theme song for Last Things First. Yes, along, along with one of my other favorite talents, uh, the, the genius, wunderbar, Camille Harris. Let's, Camille, can you, come, can you come up here and... Uh, yeah, let's try to do the theme song live. We, yeah. we, we haven't performed it since we recorded it. Oh, uh, quick, quick fun fact about this theme song. So I was, before, uh, before I started the podcast, uh, I was watching this movie called, uh, Begin Again, which came out a couple of years ago, and if you didn't see it, that's fine. It stars, uh, Mark Ruffalo and Kieran Knightley. Uh, James Corden has a wonderful supporting role in it, and it also features Adam Levine from Maroon 5 as the villain. And they, uh, celebrate New York and the making of music, and they go all around the city, uh, recording with the ambient noise of New York City. And I thought, oh, I don't know about this movie, but I love this idea of making music out and about in New York City. So I, I got on the email, on the Gmail with uh, Shockwave and Camille, and I said, would you guys want to do something like that? And they sent me a photo from the beach at Coney yeah. Island with a, suitcases of musical instruments. Yeah, we composed the theme song to Last Things First. At Coney Island on, uh, I believe, two or three beach towels and uh, harmonicas and what? Uh, they all came from Camille. And, uh, we're talking to that microphone, yeah. Okay, so... Um... To the listeners, Camille is now playing and talking and struggling with a mic cable <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. yeah, we went to Coney Island. I had a melodica, a um, micro chord, mm. and um, I don't remember what else. Uh, oh, uh, lots of other guitar. little, yeah, guitar, and a tiny little amp. And we had a little strange man take a picture of us. Yes, he came and listened to us for a while with the Ferris wheel thing in the background. He took a beautiful picture. Yeah, it was a really great picture. Yeah. Anyway, so we wrote the the, the theme song to this. So why don't, why don't we do it? That's all it is. You ready, Sean? Let's start the show. Round of applause. Uh, yeah, how do we go? Last things Last things Last first. Thank you, For the host of Last Things First, take a microphone. Thank you, Camille and Shockwave. <laughs> My next guest is a Queens native who turned his weekly comedy showcase in a Lower East Side bar basement into a concert film, Tell Your Friends, 
that premiered at South by Southwest and also played at Montreal's Just for Last Festival and Comic-Con. His own credits include VH1's Best Week Ever, Comedy Central's Premium Blend, and the Showtime special Caroline Ray and Friends. He also hosts a new podcast called Top 3, and his second stand-up comedy album, Working Class Fancy, comes out in May. So let's get to it. Please welcome Liam McEnany. <laughs> Liam, thanks for uh, thanks for joining me on Last Things First. No problem, McCarty. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. So uh, McCarthy and Macanini is we're like a fucking pub over on 30th Avenue. Yeah, we're we're just in the Greek part of Irish Queens. No, no, there's a ton of Irish pubs sneaking their way down. Uh, down uh, 30th Avenue now, yeah. 31st Avenue rather. Like uh, it, down, once you go down like uh, by Broadway, right? Yeah, that's where they all are. What's uh, under the tracks? Under the train tracks. Well, so that's not gentrification. What is it called if it's just Irish? If it's just Irish. <laughs> if it's just Irish. Just the Irish. The is ethnic it? whites, as as uh, <laughs> they called them in the 19th century. Is that what it means to be working class fancy? Uh, working Class Fancy is actually uh, the title of my album, which comes yeah. out May 20th on Comedy Dynamics. And it is, I mean, I have a theory, yeah. which is I sent you this album about a month ago and you haven't right. listened to it yet. That's no, my theory. No, I've listened to all of it, including the two encores. Including, I did, I had two <laughs> encores. But uh, you say you say that like it's ridiculous. <laughs> well, no, I, I know it's true to form because you talk about writing jokes in Dunkin' Donuts. And I know for years right. you've had status updates right. filed from no, Dunkin' Donuts. No, no, Donuts. it's like you said I had two encores, like there was some kind of joke involved. No, there are two encores okay. on the disc. There are two encores on the album. I, I listened to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some two dozen tracks. Some two dozen tracks, yes. that's right. Uh, uh, but one of, one of the titles of the track is uh, Working Class Fancy on Sunset Boulevard. And uh, that's where that's where the name comes from. Okay. I mean, the you know the truth is like I grew up in a I grew up in Central Queens. I, I talk a little bit about it, but I, I grew up in Central Queens. Uh, you know, where and and the joke kind of the bit actually it's a story. It's a true story. I was mm-hmm. walking down Sunset and I just taken this very long walk and I thought I'd treat myself to a pumpkin scone uh, on Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> what time of year was it? It was October. Okay. Uh, I spent I spent all of October of 2015 in LA, just kind of doing stuff. So but, at least pumpkin was on the menu already. Yeah, yeah. So it was like a pumpkin scone, and as I was walking down Sunset eating this pumpkin scone, uh, <laughs> there was a junkie lying on Sunset Boulevard, and as I approached him, I kind of activated him, uh, and he looked up at me, and he's like, uh, "How can you eat that shit?" <laughs> and he went right back to sleep. Uh, but I talk, I, you know, I, I say I ate that because I'm working class fancy because I'm from Central Queens. Right. Uh, back when that was a little more lower middle class, you know, the I, there's always this idea of like a box of Entenmann's cookies, which is, you know, whatever three forty nine. That's the fancy stuff. Like you get that when you're gonna have company, <laughs> you know, and then and then you have like regular shit generic cookies right. for for you know regular occasions. You know there there are plenty of stand-up comedians who who hail from Queens or from uh, outer Queens, which we call Long Island. Right. Did <laughs> did growing up did growing up in the city uh, make show business seem more attainable to you? No, I mean where I grew up, first of all, was very uh, was very suburban. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like it's it's a short it's a short tra- very it's like a fifteen twenty minute train ride to Midtown Manhattan, but it's a complete world apart. Like there. There are times you could just leave the subway, 
at night and back home and you just be like, you'd forget you're part of New York City. So, you know, it just, it was a very, it's, it's interesting. It was a very like kind of boring area, like a lot of people whose lives were just like, you work hard uh, and then you can buy retire to Long Island and, you know, make the occasional like weekend trip to Club Med or, you know, the Berkshires or something like that. And that was your entire life, you know. Uh, so it was just like being in show business or being on television, like maybe you knew someone who went to high school with uh, Simon and Garfunkel or mm -hmm. like someone who hung out with the Ramones before they hit it big. But generally, you know, like the the idea of, of being in show business was just something that at the time especially – you you didn't do unless you like were crazy. Like now, comedy is almost seen as this middle class career path that you can right. get into out of college because there's so much work doing shit shows, you know, on television or or the internet or something like that, and you can make like a good high five, low six figure salary, not being very good at it. But when you were 18 and decided to do comedy, you also dropped 19. Out of you also dropped out of high school, right? Well, I dropped. Well, the deal was I dropped out of high school uh, after my senior year because I was going to have to repeat my senior year, and it looked like even if I aced all of my classes, which mm -hmm. I was not doing, I wasn't attending really, I would probably have to do part of a third senior year before I could actually, you know, uh, before you could actually graduate. So I just got my GED, okay. and I spent a year kind of just bumming around. Uh, with some people, and I talk a little bit about that actually in my first album, Comedian. Um, and I, uh, you know, and, and I did a couple of, I, I joined a couple of improv groups through backstage. Did your parents think you were crazy then? Well, I, for I, doing this, I had my problems. They were happy that I was doing anything. Okay. It wasn't just like hanging out and getting into trouble. So uh, you I got arrested. I mean, I did yeah. a lot of shit, but I got arrested for prank calling. And that was like, How like, do you get arrested for prank calling? What um, what what level of pranksterism is involved? Bomb threats to the White House? No, uh, just some guy we like me and my friends knew from high school, mm -hmm. and we did it for my parents' phone, and we called them over and over, and they called the cops, and the cops came and took me to Ridgewood, mm. which at the time was like, who the fuck lives in Ridgewood? And now you know it's like the cool place to be. Were you a fan of the Jerky Boys and Crank yes. Yankers? Like, that was, crank Yankers might no, that not have started be, yet. That was before but, Crank Yankers, but Jerky Boys definitely. Jerky Boys, uh, by the way, were from not too far from where I was okay. in Queens, and everyone claimed they knew the Jerky Boys, and of course nobody did because those guys like started in the eighties. But uh, but yeah, so like you could actually crank call. The businesses, like, it wasn't hard to figure out who they had called because they weren't from, they, like, they were all in Maspeth and, <laughs> you know, Middle Village. Right. So you would call them and they would actually get on the phone and, like, do those jerky boy voices at you just because they were bored at work. There's a lot of warehouses in Maspeth. There, there, there are. There are a lot of warehouses and a lot of, like, paint businesses. Like, when I look up UPS pickup places, it <laughs> wants to send me to Maspeth. I'm like, I'm not going there. No, you to pick up my UPS. No, it's not worth anything you're getting via UPS is not worth it. Especially since they will re-deliver. They'll re-deliver right. like no matter even if they say they won't, they oh, will. That's a good that's like, good, they'll good do knowledge. It just automatically over and over until you get your package. There's no reason to go out to the ass end of Queens. Uh but anyway, yeah, so like so I got arrested for that and I was I was doing like a couple of uh, improv groups at the time as I said. Well, you said you you got that out of backstage so you were You were obviously looking for a career in show business if you're picking up backstage. Right, but I had no idea how to actually do it. 
Well, you so knew like, to pick up backstage, so that's step well, one. Yeah, right? I mean that was in like uh, Barnes and Noble. It was okay. It was just like you know, like once once you get into actual showbiz, you're like, yeah, don't really do that. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the time, I was just like, I didn't know any other way to get in. Like it just like I. I believed a lot of what I saw in TV and the movies about showbiz, where it's like you just get one break and that's it. Like you get one break and you're doing you're doing gangbusters, right? So like before I did stand up, I would watch I would watch stand up on comedy, the Comedy Channel on TV all the time, and I always assumed everyone on TV who's doing stand up was doing really well. Like I was like, man, this guy made it on the A list. He's got to have a car and a house and. Uh, you know, like making a ton of money from that hot five-minute set. Yeah, well, uh, you, like you don't know because, right. like, all you know about is those stories about people who got discovered on the Tonight Show in the seventies. So, uh, yeah, so I, like, I, I thought, like, I didn't know how to get into it, and I really wanted to be a stand-up, but I was scared to do it. So I, um, I just looked him back. Actually, the first time I did stand-up was an ad in the Village Voice. I also like found, like, looked for. Audition opportunities in the Village Voice, which uh, that's not that's not too far fetched. I got involved in comedy the first time through an improv group that advertised in the classifieds of the Seattle Post Intelligencer, which right. is which is no longer a newspaper because we're <laughs> in 2016 now. Well, I mean, I did these two improv groups, and like um, you they, were in two groups. I was in two groups. I auditioned for both of them, and you got in both of them. I got in both of them because it turned out. That it wasn't so much like uh, you're great to be, you're great, and so you're in our mm-hmm. group. So much as like we will sell you four or five dollar tickets that you can then sell to your tens, <laughs> your friends for ten dollars each, and then you know you're like, oh my god, I can make so much money doing this improv shit, and then you learn like, no, no, that's just you paying twenty dollars to perform every week, <laughs> and nobody's gonna buy tickets, and you end up just giving them away for free, and nobody wants to go anyway. Right, it definitely wasn't the UCB. No, I mean they were barely in town at that point. When I was right? when I first started, I think it was before they were even doing the residency at Solo Arts. Like I think I think it was like uh, so the improv scene was a lot different back then. Yeah, it was a lot. I mean, it's like uh, I'll be it'll be twenty years in stand up for me this year. So you know, ninety six, the improv scene was uh, lousy little improv shows like a Saturday at six at the New York Comedy Club, and then Chicago City Limits had its theater. On First Avenue, across from Dangerfields. Okay, and then I think maybe Comedy Sports had a had like a little theater somewhere uh, in New York, and they might still, as far as I know. And that was it. It was a lot of short form improv. Okay, and like Chicago style long form improv wasn't even, wasn't a thing, you know? Right. Like uh, Chicago City Limits really had the the monopoly on improv in this town for a very long time. Was there anybody in either of those two improv groups who are still doing comedy? Yes. Later? Oh my God, Paul Shear was in Chicago City Limits with you. No, no, I wasn't okay. in Chicago City Limits. I, I, no, no, the people in your two groups. Oh no, no, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> You're the sole survivor of comedy. I'm the only from... one who was too dumb to give up uh, and go to law school or whatever. No, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about CCL or no, like no. Eugene Cordero was no, in that. And yeah, Victor Vernado and Paul Shear, like you know, like. But those guys, once they got a chance to jump ship to UCB, they pretty much took it. You right, know. but you were you weren't there. You were at these other two groups with because no, by the by the time that really took off, I was doing stand up pretty much regularly. How long did it take you doing improv before you realized, okay, no, what I really want to be doing is stand up? 
Well, I like I said, when I was in high school, I did like this kind of audition thing through. I mean, that's really my first real time. My first real attempt at stand up was mm-hmm. like there was a contest where you could win a hundred dollars. First prize was a hundred dollars, so I just went up to the Upper West Side, and I was like seventeen years old, and I says <laughs> I signed up for the contest, and I. <laughs> I then sat backstage and was like, all right, so what kind of jokes can I think of? Because at the time, I was one of those guys that, like, would hang out and be funny in conversation. But I, was, I wasn't I was actually, like, you know, uh, I, I, I had no idea what you actually had to do to be a stand-up comedian. Right. So that went really poorly. <laughs> uh, Your improv skills did not translate. No, not at all. No. But I wasn't even doing improv then. Like, that, right. was, that was, like, this is pre- I was just, like, a little groups. baby boy. So then uh, when I was in one of these improv groups, this guy I knew named Kavika – uh, was doing uh, this open mic every week at the Surf Reality, which was a theater on the, on Allen Street in the Lower East Side. And, um, you know, and it was like I was doing improv because I was scared to do stand-up because it was something – I mean, it's so weird. When, when you're a teenager, you have such an urgency about everything and you think everything has to happen at once right? or else it's never going to happen. And you have <laughs> you're no going to miss like, out. Yeah, this the is true. FOMO. It's true. And you really like – you're just like – Oh, I got to do this, got to do this, got to right. do this. Or at least I was. Like, because I was like, because I was like, I don't want to waste any, any time. I mean, so, you know, when I was 10, I had this really, well, I was eight rather. When I was eight, I had this really morbid thought in the shower. Like, I'm eight years old and I've already wasted 10% of my life <laughs> that I haven't accomplished anything. So, like, by the time I was like 18, I was just fucking ready to go. So when I was 19, I was in this improv group. I was in this improv group, and this guy was going to, um, was going to this uh, the open mic at surf. The yeah. open mic at surf every week, and I was really scared to do it because I was like, "This is my lifelong dream, and if I'm bad at it, then then I have no other dreams, and I'm gonna never do anything fun in my life." <laughs> so I um, so I went and I did it, and it was scary, and. It was luckily it was like an anything goes mic and you know it was like a lot of bad poetry, a lot of bad music, a lot of bad stand up and every time someone was you know the other thing was the other thing that pushed me was just I watched Evening at the Improv one night and it was just all these cookie cutter guys all dressed the same uh you know with the with the button down shirt tucked into the khakis, maybe a blazer with the sleeves rolled up, skinny tie. This was a little post uh, Jake Johansson mm-hmm. skinny tie era. Okay. Uh, but they all looked the same. They all had the same cadence. They all had the same kind of jokes. And I was just like, these guys are terrible and they're on television. So all I have to do is be as good as a terrible comedian and I'll be on tel- and I'll be a professional comedian on television. And it turned out I was right. But, um, but you didn't realize at the time that those are the comedians who, who burst the bubble of the first comedy boom. And also, it was like the kind of thing where... Putting them on television made people realize, oh, we don't need to have terrible comedians. Well, that was it. And also, it was just like, you know, uh, that was the point where kind of uh, all the good people that broke it on Evening at the Improv and made it the show it was had gone on to bigger things or had quit comedy. Uh, And so you were just seeing like kind of like just, let's just fucking put whoever has four minutes on that we see, you know, bumming around Hollywood. So, like, these guys really, you know, like, they were features and or maybe, you know, openers who kind of had nothing past that first five minutes. Right. 
you know, and so they would just, I'm sorry, I'm like talking nonstop. Like, that's, this is a that's, monologue. That's what podcasts are. They are, but it's just, uh, I'm kind of bulldozing your interview. Mm. But anyway, my No, whole, you're the guest. Well, my point was, this like, isn't, I don't know if you've listened to mine, but mine's not about me. I know, but you know, it's like, uh, but I should stop for questions at some point. <laughs> well, uh, after that, after that first open I mic. I also shouldn't be so angry. I just, <laughs> just want to say right now, it's nothing to do with you. Liam, uh, you're doing great. I know. Actually, I do know, but it's just, yeah. uh, you know, I'm being a little aggressive tonight. Hey, you're so. great, man. I'm doing the Marin thing. I should be sitting on the back of this stool. <laughs> well, let's, let's, let's pause. We, uh, I think, I think, uh, Cambry, I think we have a clip. Clip. Ooh, I think we clip. have a, I think we have a clip. I would hate to see a clip of me. Yeah. When? What? I think if, you know, if we're ready in the booth. Well, while she gets ready, I'll finish telling the story. Well. That I was in the middle of telling. No, you were done. This was about. <laughs> it's no longer about me. Okay. No. All right. It's about, it's about that sweet, sweet silence of, of waiting for yeah, tech no, to we, happen. Yeah, we have a clip now. We, uh, let's, let's listen to that. There's it's, nothing it's better for an audio podcast than just silence. Some video. <laughs> oh, this is from Tell Your Friends. Okay. And it's also from Working Class Fancy. It is. I forgot. Yes. This would be great for the listeners at home. <laughs> Growing up in New York City, the NYPD had a program where they would send a uniformed officer into my classroom twice a year to talk to us about drugs. And the guy would come with a briefcase filled with drug samples. <laughs> and he would explain what each one was, what each one would do to us, and how much each one would cost. And I was never sure if this guy was supposed to tell us drugs were bad or if he was some kind of traveling drug salesman. Because he would. He'd be like, all right, kids, this here is cocaine. Now, you may have heard that cocaine's a fun party drug, but it's very expensive. <laughs> a lot of people have lost their houses and their cars using it. That's why they've switched to crack. <laughs> It gets you high, but it's a only five bucks a hit. <laughs> this is marijuana or weed. Now, your friends are going to try to tell you that the marijuana is not that bad for you just because it's not addictive and it does no long-term damage. <laughs> this is acid or LSD. Now, I'm going to tell you kids a story about a boy not much older than yourselves was at a party and decided to try the acid for the first time. And he thought he could fly. And he saw a moonbeam coming in through the window. And he thought he could climb that moonbeam to heaven. Then he wrote a song about it made $8 million. Now he owns an own. <laughs> Don't do drugs, kids. Thank you. So that's the track Dare Officer, which uh, you can find on Liam's new stand-up comedy album, Working Class Fancy. The the track we just saw, uh, one, when's the last time you wore those pants? Uh, this is when we filmed the, the concert film. Okay. Now, the concert film is the culmination of uh, your weekly showcase that you were doing, Tell Your Friends, uh. in, uh, was it Lolita Bar? Lolita Bar. Lolita yeah. Bar on the Lower East Side. Tell me about the journey from that first open mic to actually starting your show. 
Okay, so uh, it's 14 years, and I'll tell it in real time. Uh, I was always a guy who produced my own shows, mm-hmm. and um, when I started Tell Your Friends, it was because I was really unhappy with how poorly written my stand-up was. Okay. And it's tough when you're doing showcase shows. Like, I was doing a lot of open mics because I was just grinding, grinding, grinding with the writing. But, like, it's tough when you're doing that because it's a lot of other comics or, like, bitter people who never made it in comedy who are sitting there hating you for doing stand-up. And it's all four minutes or five-minute spots. And you can't really develop that way. And then... I also always had this feeling like when I was doing showcase shows, like I didn't want to bomb too much because then you don't get invited back. Right. So I was like, well, I had always been good about producing my own shows. And I was like, well, let me just, you know, there was this uh, bar basement that my friend Amber Tozer had co-produced a show with a guy named Andrew J. Letterer uh, at Lolita. And I liked the space just because they had a microphone. And a clip light, and that's all you need for for like a show. And it's a very it was a very intimate space. And I always like to say like it's kind of like a shoebox of a space. Yeah, it had the dimensions of a subway car, right? But a little bigger. But I always like to say like the best comedians on earth come to tell your friends to feel physically uncomfortable because <laughs> they would because I would draw these big big crowds in this tiny tiny space. Nice. What year did you start? Tell your friends. Uh, that would have probably been 2006. What What was your career looking like at that point? My career was interesting because I had done, I'm trying to think, I had done Best Week Ever. You were working with Geraldo at the time, right? I started, I, started the sh- I started writing for Greg Geraldo's show after I started Tell Your Friends. Right, I remember that. That was the Friday night. That was the Friday night showcase. Yeah, show hosted by Geraldo. It was like the it was their Friday night stand-up block because they they had a, like a Friday night stand-up block where they would premiere new specials and show old specials, but it was also uh, like a one-hour talk show that like with the elements sprinkled throughout. So right in like, the beginning and then interstitials. Yeah, so it'd be like an opening monologue, then Todd Barry's special, then uh, five minutes or so, then a five-minute bit. Uh, like a desk piece or something. With an audience too, right? With a live studio audience. Yeah. And the the best part was uh, on the DVRs, like the, the TV guides, it would just say for three hours, Stand Up Nation with Greg Giraldo. So comedians would get mad because you couldn't set your DVR to record the special. You had to record the entire thing. And you couldn't tell people exactly when it was going to be on. Right. Because like a new special would premiere at 9.37 <laughs> or like 9.42 depending on how long the Patrice O'Neill interview went on. Right, and at the time, people were just promoting on MySpace, really, Yeah, or their email lists. Yeah, or email. Know, or just hoping So you just had to say, tune in Friday night. Yeah, or you were hoping people would find you. For all three hours, maybe. <laughs> I think I'll be on. I don't know. Yeah, you'd, you were hoping people would find you, and if you were like a newer comedian for whom this was a big deal, it's like <laughs> you, people couldn't go to the fucking channel guide to see who they were watching. Because it would just say "Stand Up Nation" with Craig Geraldo. What uh, what was what was working with Geraldo like for you then? Greg, I mean, it was you know what, man. Like, I don't get intimidated by people who are famous. I get intimidated by people who are smart and fast and funny. And Greg was a very intimidating person to try to be funny in front of. So I'd often like, if there was a writers' room situation, I could only be productive when he wasn't in the room. 
like, because I, I, I just would be afraid to throw out a joke because he's one of those guys that would immediately analyze it and know if it was a bullshit bad joke or not. Uh, but he was also, like, just one of the most naturally funny guys I've ever met. So, like, he was one of those guys, like, just... He would just walk into the room, and even if he was in a terrible mood, just do like the the mood of the room would be automatically like ten times funnier, you know. And he was just like a guy who could take anything and make it funny. Like I really fucked up because there's you know the big New York Comic Con that happens at a uh, the Javits Center every year, right in the fall. In the fall, yeah. But the uh, but I think at that I think then it was in June because it was around the time we were recording. Okay. But then there was another uh, much smaller. Comic Con called the Big Apple Comic Con, which happened at the Penn Hotel, oh. Pennsylvania Hotel across from Penn Station. Right. So I sold them on like I was like, guys, the New York Comic Con is happening. We have to do a remote there. We'll send Greg. This is happening. I sent them the whole list of all the events that mm-hmm. were happening, like the costume contest and this and that. And uh, and they were just like perfect. They they set up the date. They set up the arranged to go out to the Javits Center, and then as it got closer, like the week before, I double checked. I was like, "Oh, we're going to the Big Apple Comic Con, <laughs> which is a shitty Comic Con, and people don't really dress up for it." And because uh, they were like, "We'll have people in costumes, we'll right. make fun of nerds," but because Greg is such a funny guy, he just walked in and like, you know, we were able to get five minutes of, of great comedy out of it because Greg is like a naturally funny person. Like Greg saved that piece, and you know that's. As well as like working with Greg Giraldo ten years ago. Was that your most memorable working comedy gig? Or no, I mean I've done was... I've done I mean not as a performer, as someone like behind the scenes working in comedy. I guess I mean I'd say tell your friends the concert film was the most memorable. Just like because I Well that was your baby though. That was my baby, but it was also like you know, spent months. I think people just kind of showed up expecting it to be like a couple of people with cameras in the bell house and Handicams or something, but it was like no, we had a production staff, and you know, I really learned. Like, luckily, Victor had done one of those before. Victor Vernado, who directed and produced it, had done one before, so he had like a, basically like knew how to do it, had a crew ready to go. Uh, but then, because it, w- it wasn't just a concert film, it was also like interviews with people like Jim Gaffigan and Janine Garofalo and Colin Quinn and Mark Marin and Hannibal Burris, just about you know, like how the alternative comedy stream became mainstream, there was that documentary aspect to it. So suddenly we had uh, the guy, who, Charlie Satello, who books comedy for South by Southwest, had <clears throat> the year before been the, also been the documentary booker. So he knew, like he saw the, the trailer. We put the trailer up online and, um, and he knew Victor. So Victor had submitted another project uh, a couple years previously he emailed Victor and he asked to look at it. And then we were invited into South by Southwest Film Festival. And then suddenly I was putting like a festival tour together. And I learned very, very quickly <laughs> like how to put a festival tour together and who to contact. And like I learned that once you were once you had your world premiere at South by Southwest Film Festival, a lot of other festivals, even if they weren't right, would look at your film for free just because you had that pedigree of like right. oh, we already we're already doing this. We don't need like, the only festival that charged me was Cannes in France, and it's because they didn't fucking... It was an American stand-up comedy film. I paid the 90 bucks, and I never... Like, I got a re- very nice rejection note from them. But, you didn't uh, want to go to Cannes, anyhow. I totally wanted to go to Cannes. 
And in fact, if I had more money, I mean, it's such a low budget shoestring budget thing that uh, if we had more money, I would have just flown out to Cannes myself and uh, and just done the like Lloyd Kaufman, you know, Lloyd Kaufman did, which was, you know, of course he he's trauma. He's the guy who does trauma films, mm-hmm. and of course he none of his movies were getting to Cannes, so he just went to France uh, and set up his own screenings. And, you know, like, as a result, people actually, like, went to, to screenings because it's kind of funny. And the same, the same way that, like, slam dance happened outside of Sundance. Uh, but anyway, that's very much off the topic at hand. Well, having gone through the festival circuit, though, with the concert film, that kind of... I've, cl- never, I've never performed at any of these comedy festivals, by the way. Like, even the years that we were in them, they, mm-hmm. wouldn't, they wouldn't actually allow me to do stand-up. So what did you, <laughs> what did you take away from that whole process? Because you were closing a chapter on the Tell Your Friends show, I wasn't quite closing it yet. I was, I, I did, I, I kept it going throughout the whole thing, mm-hmm. just because the hope was to sell it to television, which just didn't happen. We came close, but I, just for, you know, just the way the business is, uh, it was, it was a very interesting, very, the worst year possible to to try to sell this kind of thing because like. Uh, HBO hadn't started doing one-hour specials again. Like they had, they were just getting back from the comedy special. Yeah, 2011. Yeah. So it was like right before, like they were like, "Oh, right, we do comedy specials, and they do really well for us." So, like, uh, they were they considered it again once they were headed up and going. Um, but they, you know, they weren't doing that. And comedy Central were just like, "Yeah, we aren't acquiring outside specials anymore. We're just producing our own." But it was the year before Netflix and Amazon had started producing their own. Original content, right. so, so it's just like it just didn't sell. I mean, it's just it's just one of those things like timing. It's just a it's timing, timing and uh, but that's why uh, show business is a fucking heartbreaker, <laughs> and people kill themselves to try to get a break. And you know, like it's really like almost just like you just have to every time someone says no, you have to say yes to yourself and keep going. Is that also why you decided then that's when you were going to start making CDs? Well, no, because this is your second, and your first one came out since right. then as well. Right. So what? I, so what happened was uh, just to finish with the tell your friends right. thing. So then uh, that all ended, and I did, I I was very fortuitous. I was able to end the live show with like a few like a month of just big shows because W Kamal Bell was coming to New York, so I did like a Welcome to New York W Kamal Bell show, and then the final tell your friends at Lolita. Uh, uh, Louis Black, who's been very, very nice to me over the course of my career, was like, "Yeah, I'll headline that as long as you don't tell anybody, I'll be there." Uh, so it was like a big. That was able. I was able to send it off in style. Um, and then I was just kind of like, "Well, what do I do next?" And a special thing records had released. Um, had released the Tell Your Friends movie, and in fact, you can buy the Tell Your Friends movie as a DVD and CD soundtrack. First of all, in the lobby here at a QED Astoria, which is you didn't mention this at the top, but that's where we are is QED and Astoria. <laughs> but you you can also buy it at astrecords.com as a, as a so I was in LA uh, for a week just doing shows and meeting some people, and I I met up with Ryan McMenamin who mm-hmm. runs a special thing records with um, Matt Belknap. And he was like, look, why don't you do an album with us? And I was like, great, I need something to fucking do. Because, you know, like, once a project is over, I'm no good on my own. Like, I have to be doing something. Uh, okay, so 
so let me let me uh, close by asking. I ask all of my guests the same thing. Right. Um, What's my favorite dirty word? No. <laughs> who has? Uh, by the way, it's racism. <laughs> who is? Who has been the best at uh, giving you advice as you try to maneuver through these through these years of figuring out what comes next? You know, what's funny is like um, I listen to everybody. I don't listen to everybody. I listen to people that I respect, you know, and, you know, I'm, my problem is I'm always bad at asking for advice, and I'm, I'm getting a lot better about asking for help in that regard uh, because anytime I do, um, you know, I would say in terms of, you know, Colin Quinn is always good if you ever, if you ever had, like, stumped by something in comedy – uh, if you know him at all, he's he's always like got five minutes to like just think about your question and answer it. I mean, I haven't talked to him too much just because like I have a lot of social anxiety and it's hard for me to to be friends with people uh, outside of a podcast scenario. <laughs> I would say I do most of my socializing now via podcasts. Okay, um, but Colin Quinn is great if you ever get a chance. You know, Adam Wade has that great story about Colin, like, looking at his tape when Adam was a musical comedian and saying, like, yeah, you got to put down the guitar because people really connect with the stories you tell between songs. And now Adam is, like, kicking ass as a storyteller. Um, and I'm fumfering because there's quite a few people who have given me great advice over the years, and I can't think of any of them. Yeah. Uh, Brian Tucker is a friend of mine who... Uh, is one of the head writers at, at Saturday Night Live. And I say that not because I'm like bragging that I know one of those guys, but just because uh, being successful at that kind of job doesn't just require you being uh, funny, which he is. He's a great comedy writer, but also being very good at like kind of dealing with people and dealing with the business. And so anytime, anytime that Brian gives me, Brian's one of the few people who has just licensed to give me unsolicited advice. Because anytime he gives me advice about a bit I'm working on or uh, a project I want to work on or just anything, uh, it's always right. Brian Tucker is always right <laughs> on. Um, I had a bit very early in my career where uh, it was about the Ricky Lake show. That's how early my career was. And it was just like how she would talk black to black people and she would talk white to white people. Sure. And then the big punchline was she would talk Chinese to Chinese people. And Brian, I got off stage after, and I got huge laughs. I got off sure stage. Sure you did. I did. No, it really did. It really, really did. And I got off stage and Brian was just like, oh, you know, the great thing about that bit is like, uh, people are laughing because they're racist, not because, uh, you're, you're, <laughs> you know, talking about Ricky Lake, and I was like, "Oh, right, yeah, that's not the kind of laugh I'm going for." Although that is your favorite dirty word. <laughs> well, it's because I'm pro-racism. Oh. Uh, just uh... so, what's the uh, what's on the flip side? What's the first piece of advice you'd give anybody who comes up to you who's eager to get into this game of comedy? I honestly, my advice would be, um, you know. There's always, I'm trying to phrase this in a way that isn't like terribly dour. Okay. But there's always going to be someone who's like funnier than you or luckier than you. But there's never going to be someone who can work harder than you. 
And people who work hard and are easy to work with will always work and will always do well. And that's just the truth. Like, you know, you could be naturally funny, but if you're an asshole, you'll get so far. Uh, or if you like, you could be naturally funny and like the best networker on earth. But if you don't have like, if you're not constantly working and coming up with new stuff, you're only going to get so far because you're going to be that guy with the great 10 minutes and nothing else, you know? And so like, just, I, I think this is something new comedians never want to hear. Right. <laughs> Cause they want to hear like, this is how you be funny or here's the person at comedy central you need to talk to, to get your special. But like, uh, it's, it's such a cliche thing to say, but it's, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And so, you know, I'm 20 years in standup and I've accomplished a lot of stuff. Uh, I, I've done a lot in my career and I've been covered in the media a bit and, I feel like I've gotten fair, like pretty good at what I do. Uh, I'm no longer self-deprecating and saying things like "fairly good" or you know "pretty good" for who I, you know, like I've, I've gotten I've gotten pretty good stand-up, and I I'm not quite where I want to be, but you know, like you never be happy because uh, if you are, you're a hack. <laughs> like if you're happy with yeah. where you are as a as a art, like just on the artistic end of the stand-up, right. it's because you've stopped trying. Like uh, you know, like. Uh, but, uh, I totally forgot where I was going with that. So I think that's the end of the interview. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm happy that, uh, you put in the work and you, you made it all the way here and put aside your social anxiety. And could I just point out they... one more thing, which is just, um, sure. and I think this is important for people who are listening to know is my album working class fancy comes out on comedy dynamics, May 20th. And if you're in New York, May 24th, I'm doing the, uh, album release show, at Housing Works Bookstore, which you can find out more about at housingworks.org. And you can find me online, by the way, if, in case Sean forgets to say this in the outro, the way he forgot to mention we're at QED. <laughs> uh, I'm at heyitsliam.com. That's H-E-Y-I-T-S-L-I-A-M.com uh, on the Internet. You can find out more than you need to know about me. Liam McEnany, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Liam McEnany. Liam had so much to say. Uh, that was so lovely. Is Camille still here? Camille, Camille, would you would you please do me the favor of, of coming up here and gracing us all with your musical genius? Camille Harris, everybody. Good ones. Yeah. Bill Harris, you may have seen her featured on the IFC special College Humor's Comedy Music Hall of Fame. That's true. I wrote this for that. That's what it is, yeah. It's fine. This is called Baby on the Subway. 
episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.